Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In his book, The Art of Return, The 60s and Contemporary Culture, introduced at the National Gallery of Art on September 8, 2019, James Meyer, curator of modern art, turns to art criticism, theory, memoir, and fiction to examine the fascination with this period and expressions of cultural memories across the globe. He draws on a diverse range of cultural objects that reimagine the long 1960s, a revolutionary era stretching from the mid-1950s to the mid-1970s, including reenactments of civil rights, anti-war and feminist marches, paintings, sculptures, photographs, novels, and films. Many of these works are by artists and writers born during this period who are driven to understand a monumental era that they missed. These cases show us that the past becomes significant only in relation to our present, and our remembered history never perfectly replicates time past. This, Meyer argues, is precisely what makes our contemporary attachment to the past so important. It provides us a critical opportunity to examine our own relationship to history, memory, and nostalgia. Good afternoon, welcome. I'm Harry Cooper, Senior Curator of Modern Art here at the National Gallery, and we are here to launch and celebrate this book by James Meyer. Yay. The Art of Return, the 60s in Contemporary and Contemporary Culture, which uh, has just been published by University of Chicago Press. And James has a lot to say and a lot to read to us, so I won't take very long. And in fact, I think we're going to save question and answer for upstairs at the book signing table, where James will be signing books afterwards. So I think a lot of you know James, but um, you might not know every detail. He has been a curator uh, in the Department of Modern Art here at the National Gallery basically since 2010, with a leave of about uh, a year and a half to be chief curator at DIA, after which he returned, which is a great thing for everybody. Um, and um, so before that, he was a professor at Emory University for about 15 years. Uh, before that, um, earned his PhD at Johns Hopkins, uh, studying with Yves Bois, also my professor, where we got to know each other. Before that, a master's from the Institute of Fine Arts in New York. Before that, a BA from Yale University. Before that, growing up in Western Massachusetts, and we'll just, we'll just leave it there. Um, but uh, it's been a great career. It is a great career, um, which has involved um, an expertise on the 60s and minimalism in particular. Uh, two major books there, one in 2000 called Minimalism from Fiden, and uh, another more academic book, uh, Minimalism, Art, and Polemics in the 1960s, 2004, Yale University Press. Um, but at the same time, throughout this time, James has been very involved with contemporary art um, as a critic and uh, sometimes a curator, 
as well, interested in art and institutional critique, interested in art in the era of AIDS and ACT UP. He's received fellowships from the Clark, the Getty, and uh, other institutions. And um, for all of that impressive uh, art historical resume, I would say this is not a work of art history. I don't want to classify it that way. I don't think we can classify it really as a memoir, as a, um, a work of history exactly, as a work of fiction. I would say it's a work of literature because it is beautifully written. And um, to prove it, I'm going to do something very foolish and subject it to the random paragraph test right here in front of all of you. Honestly, I'm just opening it up, okay? We enter a second gallery painted the color of an overripe orange. Shag and sisle carpets, paper globe lanterns, tangerine pillows, vintage furniture, a macrame wall hanging, video monitors, and a Super 8 film projector complete the arrangement. How's that? It's hard to stop. It's hard to stop. The writing is beautiful and vivid. The tense is really present tense throughout because it's about um, James's experience and, and through him our experience uh, in the present of art that is also uh, about the past. So um, the book is in three parts. I think we're going to hear uh, quite a bit of the, the coda, the final part um, from James uh, this afternoon. I'm very honored that, that the book is partly dedicated to me. I guess I, I let him write it instead of having to fill out maybe one extra loan form or something. But uh, the fact that he was so incredibly productive um, during these years is, is quite amazing. And, um, and he dedicated it to, to uh, Charlotte Meyer, his mother, and Harry Cooper. And all I can say is I'm glad you put your mother first. That's good for all of us. And uh, take it away, James. It's wonderful to see everybody. Thank you so much for coming on this beautiful day. Um, this is a very exciting time for me. Uh, this book has been a long uh, effort. Uh, it brought me to Washington and ultimately to the gallery. I began it uh, as a professor, as Harry mentioned, at Emory. And a grant at the Smithsonian American Art Museum gave me a full year to develop the ideas that's when I became, um, came under the radar of the gallery and was invited to work here. Uh, leaving academia is a major choice not to be taken lightly, and I felt that the gallery would be a congenial place to write The Art of Return, or to, I should say to finish The Art of Return, because the gallery, as you know, is a scholarly place dedicated to scholarship, and when you work here, you feel that. Uh, the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts, CASVA, our fellowship entity, um, which brings scholars from around the world and around the country. Our uh, first-rate publications department, uh, with whom I've worked, and our terrific library, one of the best art libraries around. Their terrific interlibrary loan office got me lots of materials for this book. So it was in this, this research ambience that I felt I could finish this book, and it, it happened. Three individuals have been particularly supportive of uh, my book and of my work in general. Um, 
Frank Kelly, our chief curator, scholar of American and British art, has always been so supportive of my work, and I thank him. And Liz Pachter, administrator in the curatorial division, always uh, taking an interest in my work and supporting my work and supporting this book. Liz understands intuitively what curators do and what research entails. And finally, of course, uh, Harry, um, Harry's invitation to come to the gallery, Harry's um, uh, not minding if I kind of uh, worked at home for one day on this book, um, Harry's editorial input in the book, if, if the writing is, is any good, Harry certainly had a hand in that. Harry's uh, contribution to my work is very, very significant, and that's why the book is dedicated not only to my mother, but to him. So this book, The Art of Return, how did it come about? As Harry mentioned, I'd written quite a bit on the art of the 60s, books on minimalism, essays on conceptualism, post-minimalism, produced exhibitions on this period, including the Dwan, the Virginia Dwan exhibition that was here at the gallery a few years ago. These were narratives of the 60s. The minimalism book goes from 1959 to 1968. It tells a kind of clear narrative of the invention of minimal art, the meetings of artists like Donald Judd and Carl Andre and Anne Truitt, and it ends in 68. The Dwan exhibition, starting in 59, ending in 1971, the history of a gallery, year by year, movement by movement. So I've been very involved in telling stories of the 60s, generally in a chronological, a methodical way, uh, in, a, in a kind of art historical format, turning the 60s into history. When I began this work, early 90s, my dissertation, the 60s was closer, it was more proximate, it was of quite recent past, and I had the opportunity to meet many of the major artists and players of that period. As the 60s has gone further into the past, as we move into this present, it recedes and it becomes increasingly history. But I have found that it has returned as memory and it doesn't go away. And I call this phenomenon the 60s return. So you have, on one hand, the historical 60s, a period that might have unfolded from, say, the mid-50s to the mid or late 70s, a period historians call the long 60s, or you might call it the decadal 60s, 1960 through 1969. These different sort of chronologies or topographies of the 60s tell particular stories of that time. Then on the other hand, there is the 60s return, the 60s that didn't end, that keeps coming back, that reaches into the present, that returns. And that's the question that the book explores. As Harry mentioned, I write a lot about contemporary art. I've been involved in that all along, and many artists uh, I was writing about were similarly engaged in that period and making works about that period, returning to that period. And I call that the return to. So the return of is the return of a past in the present. The return to is the individual mnemonic act of going back to a period and trying to understand it. 
Many of these artists were engaged with the art of Robert Smithson, the figure of Robert Smithson, and I write quite a bit in part two of the book about the Smithson return, all the practices engaged with Smithson and his history and his work. Now, the more I explored this question, the more I realized it's not just a question of aesthetic practice, that it was in fact a broad phenomenon of artists and writers and performers and reenactors and filmmakers and television producers. It's a big phenomenon. In a footnote to the book, I list 90 practitioners um, who we could have written about, I could have written about. I only write about, say, 20. And every year, new works come out that could be included in such a book. Think of Quaron's Roma, um, set in 1970, um, when the artist was maybe nine in Mexico City. Or think of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, set in 1969, 50 years ago, when he was six. So this is a big, big phenomenon this 60s return, and it required a different kind of writing, a writing that wasn't simply art history, as I had practiced, or even art criticism, but cultural criticism, I would call it, an attempt to kind of grapple with this broader phenomenon and to turn this into a kind of writing that could contend with this issue. So why does the 60s return? Why does it matter so much? It's a revolutionary period, and it's the last revolutionary period on a global scale. Revolutionary periods, going back to 1789, produce a surfeit of memory. They create a lot of impact, which the period to come attempts to absorb, to come to terms to, attempts to come to terms with. And so the 60s is the last revolutionary time, and it produces a surfeit of memory as we attempt to grapple with what happened then. On one hand, it's the memory of revolution, the memory of modernism, the memory of previous revolutions, the dream of being new, of changing society. And on the other hand, it produces so many of the effects that we're dealing with still. Identity politics, feminism, second wave feminism, the GLTBQ movement, the civil rights movement, the contemporary environmentalist movement, the American Indian movement. It also, on, on a status level, produces in this country the, the great society, um, Medicare, Medicaid, the Immigration Act of 1965 that, that was a revision of the strict Immigration Act of 1924. So all of these effects and others keep impacting us today. It's also a period of tremendous violence and discord, the Vietnam War, riots around the country, um, violence of all types. It's the beginning, it's been argued, of globalization, the end of colonialism in Africa, the opening up of world markets. Globalism in the contemporary sense, it's been argued, can be traced to that moment. The mass media age, television, and even the digital age that we're now fully in, the mainframe computer, developed then. It's also not just a period of progressive politics, but we could say of reaction to those transformations. Um, the new right, Nixon's moral, excuse me, silent majority, um, 
the uh, new right of that period reacting against the anti-war movement and the radical politics of that period, and subsequent iterations of rightist politics, the Tea Party, an attempt to repeal the Great Society, for example, or the Trump base, its reaction to um, the Immigration Act of 65. So much of the reaction, airy politics of recent decades is in many ways responses to 60s transformations. The 60s I describe can be good and bad, depending on your point of view, the good and the bad 60s. On one hand, it's utopic, it dreams of being new, of changing everything for the better. Um, I have a dream speech, um, President Kennedy's first inauguration speech, the moon landing, there are all these sorts of utopic, transformative events. On the other hand, it's, as I said, a period of violence, of entropy, of social breakdown, a bad 60s. The 60s is, I would say, a recent past. It's not the Renaissance. It's not the 19th century. It's recent enough that many of us remember it. Um, or if we weren't there, we were children then, or we heard about it, we're the children of 60s children. It exists in memory in a very powerful way, in part because of its mediatization, mass television images that we're all familiar with, press images, it inhabits our memory. And so the approach to the 60s that I've taken is not simply art historical or historical, it involves memory and also the question of nostalgia. Nostalgia is how we feel about our memories. And many of the practices I write about in the book are anti-nostalgic. They, they question their own longing for a period that they missed. Most of the artists were born between 55, like Carrie James Marshall, and the late 70s. And I call them 60s children. So this book is in part a theory of late or post-boomer sensibility and aesthetics. That's one of its stakes. And I am as much a part of this generation as the generation I'm narrating. I have put myself into the story. I'm as much involved in returning as the other practitioners in the book. And so I've turned to first-person narrative in the book. It begins with me encountering hippies uh, at the age of eight in 1971, uh, watching the Vietnam War on television night after night, uh, the Kent State Massacre witnessing that event on TV. It moves forward into my graduate student years when I meet the great artists of the 60s and the 60s and my own reality are coming together. And it ends in middle age, in this passage you'll hear tonight or this afternoon, when I attend the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington here in Washington, D.C. So here we are at the end of the book. I'm no longer a child, and we are now thinking about the, the memory of the 60s and when this 60s return will end. The text is about Carrie James Marshall, an artist many of you are familiar with, he is an artist I gave an exhibition to in the Tower uh, back in 2013. And how did I come to Carrie Marshall? How did that show come about? It was this material. It was the Carrie Marshall who thinks about the 60s that led me to Carrie Marshall and ultimately to his show here at the gallery.
So I'm going to read from now on. August 2013. It was a sultry day 50 years ago when Martin Luther King Jr. spoke in this place. In the photos of the original march, the reflecting pool is a blank spot in the middle of the surging crowd, bordered by giant elms heavy with leaves. King smiles and waves at the thousands of marchers gathered at the solemn temple at the edge of the Potomac. 50 years later, the same weather, the air thick with humidity, a constant sun. The marchers sit on blankets and folding chairs or stand on the unforgiving pavement. We mill about on crabgrass and patches of dirt and crane our necks to catch a glimpse of the podium. We look at one another with curiosity as we listen to the speakers and consider our presence in this place. The organizers of the original march were highly conscious of the twine symbolism of place and time. They held the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom during the centennial year of President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, held it on the steps of the memorial on whose walls that document is chiseled word for word. Inside, the great marble statue of the slain president looks down the pool of water at the Washington Monument at the top of the opposite hill. The entire sweep of American history the nation's unification, fracture, and reunification, its past and its future, is embodied in that effigy's impassive gaze. King was the last of the speakers that day. A century after Lincoln signed his decree, that great beacon of hope, millions of people were not truly free, he lamented. Black people were barred from whites-only schools and drinking fountains and obstructed from voting. Too many Americans lived on a, quote, island of poverty in a, quote, ocean of material prosperity. The protesters had gathered to address these galling injustices, and they marched in support of a moral principle. Here's Dr. King. We've come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. One of King's most enduring phrases, the fierce urgency of now, is a state of presentness impelled by belief. It suggests being in one's moment and taking hold of it, not allowing time to pass us by. Fierce urgency is revolutionary time. The temporality the philosopher Hannah Arendt calls impatient. The time I describe in my book as the time of being new. The year 1963 was, quote, not an end but a beginning, King said. And then the great orator departed from his written remarks and broke into an ecstatic call for freedom. The Georgia preacher's voice soared as he described a time when freedom would ring across the nation, a time when young people of all backgrounds and beliefs would join together and, quote, hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. The I Have a Dream speech is the consummate expression of what I call the good 60s. Confronting an unacceptable reality, he envisions a utopic future 
a perfect union. He imagines an American citizenry bound together by democratic values and mutual respect. King and his fellow activists had some cause for hope then. The previous May, Birmingham's commissioner of public safety, Bull Connor, ordered his men to loose dogs and use water hoses on black children, turning public sympathy in support of the movement. Disgusted by a photo on the front page of the New York Times showing a German shepherd mauling a young protester, President Kennedy instigated a report that served as the basis of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The situation was volatile nonetheless. Three weeks after the protesters went home, a cabal of Klansmen bombed Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, bearing four young girls in the rubble. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in November. And with the assassinations in 1968 of King and presidential candidate Robert Kennedy, an architect of the Civil Rights Act, the dream shattered. The Gandhian techniques of nonviolence that had proven so effective during the movement's finest hours no longer seemed to work. King's murder triggered the social entropy he preached again, against. And here's King, quote, we must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into violence. The good 60s descended into a bad 60s. Riots broke out in Chicago, Baltimore, Kansas City, and many other cities, causing dozens of African Americans to lose their lives. In Washington, people took to the streets. They looted stores and smashed windows. Entire blocks burned on 14th Street. Clouds of smoke darkened the sky above the Capitol. There are many 60s endings. The conclusion of the decadal 60s, the 60s that begins in 1960 and ends in 69, is one ending. So are the various conclusions of the long 60s, the 60s that spans the mid-50s to well into the 70s. The idea of the end of the 60s is a dividing line, a temporal marker. It suggests the waning of a temporality of imminence, King's fierce urgency, and revolutionary ontology, the 60s principle of perpetual newness of being new. And it suggests the final and irrevocable decline of futurist modernism, the dream of newness of the avant-garde and earlier modernisms that the 60s remembered and still believed in. The end of the long 60s is a consolidation of the neoliberal order, of unyielding corporate and oligarchical control, and on the left, a feeling of powerlessness, of more of the same, a situation critics compare to the period of post-1789 retrenchment known as the Restoration, a time when, quote, a previous language and set of presuppositions for emancipation had run into the sand. Like the art historian T.J. Clark, the author of this description, the philosopher Alain Badieu has spoken of an uncanny resemblance between our moment and the post-revolutionary period in France, as if we find ourselves in a time not of 60s return, but of something very different, the reprise of those reactionary moments of history 
that caused past progressive eras to seem impossibly monumental and distant to those who dare to imagine something better. In the historical scheme of Badieu, there are periods of history when the emancipatory idea is dominant and intervallic periods when the enlightenment values of freedom, democracy, and equality have gone into hibernation. The red years, as Badieu refers to the long 60s, was the last historical time of recent memory. Yet intervallic periods matter too, Badieu insists. They renew, quote, the possibility of a new situation without for now being in the position to realize that possibility. Badieu, theorist of the event and witness to the events of May 1968 in Paris, locates the 1960s at the end of a historical cycle reaching back to the French Revolution, the original event. If history is the full reprise of the emancipatory idea in Badieu's sense, then what I'm calling the 60s return is the reemergence of that imaginative possibility during a reactionary time. History is hermeneutical, we know from Nietzsche. The central concern of his essay on the use and abuse of history for life is how the past operates on us, on the living. Quote, we must know the right time to forget as well as the right time to remember, end quote. We need history and we need to feel unhistorically, Nietzsche says. Let us remember and remember to forget. There is a time for remembering and a time for forgetting. After the long 60s ended, sometime perhaps in the end of the 70s, another 60s, I argue in my book, returned as nostalgia. This has not been unproblematic. The memory of the 60s is the memory of King's idea that we can be in our moment and change our situation for the better. His famous citation of the Unitarian minister Theodore Parker's metaphorical remark, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, implies that we, we can intervene in history. We can bend the arc of justice ever so slightly. King incites us to moral action. But if his words are to mean anything to us now, we must not allow ourselves to be weighed down by longing for a time when fierce urgency could be imagined and articulated. There is no going back to 1963. If life is impossible without forgetting, as Nietzsche insists, surely the final lesson of the 60s return is the need to let go of 60s memory after we've returned. These, at least, are some of the questions explored in Mementos, an ensemble of works first exhibited by Carrie Marshall at Chicago's Renaissance Society in 1998. The centerpiece of that installation was an arrangement of four oversized canvases hung flush on the wall, the so-called souvenirs. A single motif recurs in these works, an angel welcomes us into her living room. Neither white nor lithe nor youthful as the angels of Western representation are usually depicted. 
Marshall's seraphs are middle-aged and elderly black women in contemporary dress. They look like women we know or have known. They just happen to have these two enormous wings affixed to their shoulders. This admixture of the real and unreal, the material and ethereal, is the true conceit of the souvenirs. The paintings straddle two realities, a realm of middle-class domesticity, tangible and contemporary, and a transcendental domain of memory, a before. Like the angel herself, the living room of Souvenir One is deceptively ordinary. Pale green walls and wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, a white curio cabinet lined with figurines, and a prized goblet, and a gold leaf sconce draped with plastic grapes. A white sofa wrapped in plastic wards off sitters. The curtains are drawn. No daylight penetrates this airless space. We've arrived at the green parlor at the very moment the angel, who carries a vase of daffodils and roses, approaches a large table with claw-shaped feet. The angel gestures toward a crystal bowl of carnations, tulips, and greenery with one of her wings as she places the vase on the marble tabletop. A banner floats in a cloud edged in rays of silver and gold. Depicting the well-known faces of King and the Kennedys, the banner recalls those mass-produced wall hangings that were often seen in African-American households during the late 60s and 70s, along with plates, ashtrays, and even pens stamped with images of these men. The phrase, we mourn our loss, written in the Gothic script of the black church, appears beneath their portraits and dates of birth and death. Above it all, above the angel and banner, above the curio cabinet and the strange sepulchral table are the faces of many more angels framed by white wings. Circles of gold are suspended in the dewy atmosphere around these cherubim who float several feet above our heads. And where the portraits of King and the Kennedys are hand-painted in the crude style of the historical banners, the faces of these angels are silk screens of press photos, a medium developed by Warhol during the early 60s when many of these individuals lost their lives and articles about their murders featured these portraits. Ghost-like traces of the dead, these angel faces appear from left to right in the order of their deaths. The NAACP field organizer Medgar Evers shot dead on the driveway outside his home in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963. Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, the young victims of the church bombing. Voting rights volunteers, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman, murdered by Klan members in Mississippi during Freedom Summer. Malcolm X and the Black Panthers, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Massacred during a raid of Hampton's apartment by the Chicago police in 1969. Below this intricate arrangement, garlands and rosettes encrusted in gold glitter bracket the inscription in memory of, written in the saccharine cursive font of a sympathy card. Souvenir one is knowingly illusionistic. Of all the souvenirs, the space is deepest here. The walls and ceiling and dining room 
entrance recede at acute and oblique angles behind a proscenium of gold fringe and braid. Prompted by these orthogonals, vision alights on the folds of curtain between the back of the angel's head and the tip of her wing, resting on her penetrating eyes. The carpet with garland borders recedes sharply, causing the marble table and the angel to tilt toward us despite their palpable weight. But Marshall also reminds us of the canvas's physical presence, its flatness, the fact that it's a sailcloth held up by grommets and screws, and that the scene before us rests on a gray collage of sheets of paper, which, arranged in a grid pattern, interrupt the illusionism that he has carefully established. He wants us to grasp that the otherworldly world of Souvenir One cohabits the actual space in which we stand. Marshall creates volume in order to compress it. The parlor of Souvenir One is a stifling place. He draws us into this boxed-in room, inducing sensations of enclosure and containment. He sets up the sort of fiction that Flemish devotional images do that we have entered a domestic space that is both ordinary and extraordinary, a place where the divine has made itself known, and even the most incidental objects, a washing vessel, a vase of flowers, even a mousetrap, are suffused with a peculiar and veiled significance. Just as the interior in Robert Campin's Annunciation scene, the Murrowed Altar, is both a cozy bedchamber and a setting of divine events, and just as the Virgin could be mistaken for a burgher's daughter of Tournay, so too Margil's angels resemble actual women, I noted. Like the stage reality of Flemish holy scenes, the empathic realness of the souvenirs is a rhetorical effect where the masters of Netherlandish art bring us inside domestic interiors to witness the miraculous. Marshall positions us ambiguously in the temporal no man's land I describe in my book as the recent past or recentness, the unstable mnemonic ground between a monumental past that forces itself into our awareness and a present in which we struggle to make meaning, to carry on. The angel's eyes fasten on ours. Have we interrupted her in the middle of her devotions? Or has she anticipated our arrival? What is the purpose of her behest, her invitation? The woman in black is an angel of memory who, quote, asks us to remember all the people who are represented there, Marshall has said. Souvenir from the Latin souvenire means to call to mind, to remember. A souvenir is a token of memory, a memento, a reminder of what is past or gone. All of the works in Marshall's exhibition were indeed mementos. In Souvenir too, gold glitter fringe and tassels frame another sacred living room. The bowl of carnations and tulips sits on a glass-topped coffee table. A vase of white roses rests on a stand decorated with gold garlands. And though this angel holds a yellow vase identical to the one carried by her counterpart in Souvenir One, the space of this work is shallower and wider. The codes of mourning have loosened somewhat. This angel wears a mourning shirt, yet her skirt is flowery and blue, as are 
her shoes. Marshall has painted the walls and furniture in warm tones of beige, orange, and rust. A comfortable wing-back chair and plush sofa welcome the sitter. A rack of ebony and jet magazines, another familiar sight in black homes of a certain vintage, suggests an ambience of reading and relaxation. Yet the curtains are drawn here too, and there is another morning banner depicting King and the Kennedys. The angel martyrs of the first souvenir float in a cloud beneath the ceiling. Two more join them. They are Viola Liuzzo and Jimmy Lee Jackson, whose murders in Alabama in 1965, along with the fatal beating of Unitarian minister James Reeb, catalyzed the passage of the Voting Rights Act that summer. We are asked to remember these angels, too. The other souvenirs are painted black, white, and gray in the keeping with the somber tonality of mid-20th century newspaper and TV imagery. The angel in Souvenir 3 wears a white blouse and black slacks and carries a bouquet. The arrangement of flowers familiar to the beholder of the prior paintings rests on an antique table with slipper feet. A Victorian settee draped with a doily, old armchairs, an oval painting of classical temples, and a cabinet filled with goblets establish an atmosphere of refinement and repose. The morning banner is less conspicuous now, a partial reflection in the mirrored tiles above the mantel, hanging on an imaginary wall behind us. The lamentation, we mourn our loss, fragmentary, spelled backward, is barely legible. Civil rights memory recedes as other histories come into visibility. There are no faces here, only the names of prominent artists, writers, and performers, and the dates of their deaths during the decadal 60s, each occupying a cloud of its own. The painter Bob Thompson, the novelist Zora Neale Hurston, philosopher W.E.B. Du Bois, the playwright Lorraine Hansberry, the film star Dorothy Dandridge, and the sculptors Augusta Savage, Meta Warwick Fuller, and Marion Perkins, among others, are recalled. Names without faces, names with dates like tombstones, everything grisaille. The arc of memory is longer here. We've moved from a period we, quote unquote, mourn, to a farther past, from the 60s to a time the 60s remembered. The return to one time brings us to one more distant. The 60s of Souvenir 3 is a way station to another past, to the 20s and 30s, when Hurston and Savage and Perkins were at the height of their reputations, or to the turn of the last century, when Fuller exhibited at the Paris Salon and Du Bois published The Souls of Black Folk and founded the NAACP. The figures named in Souvenir 3 are trailblazers, their accomplishments all the more remarkable for having occurred during the nadir of Jim Crow segregation, intimidation, and violence. Yet they are not martyrs. The abstract paintings and tribal sculptures of the fourth canvas, Souvenir 4, evoke a modernist aesthetic vocabulary indebted to African and African diasporic prototypes. The names and faces of 23 jazz, blues, rhythm and blues, and rock and roll musicians, all of whom died between 59 and 70, crowd this space. The most celebrated figures recall others. Billie Holiday calls out the name of blues singer J.D. Short. Nat King Cole sings the name of folk performer Vera Hall. 
Dinah Washington, quote, remembers the blues guitarist J.B. Lenoir, who died four years after she did. An oversized scroll inscribed with even more names and furls above a table stacked with knickknacks and books. The phrase, we mourn our loss, has migrated to the floor, transforming Souvenir 4 itself into a scene of mourning, into a kind, from a scene of mourning into a kind of mourning banner, an enormous sympathy card, a collective declaration of sorrow. The angel in this image has collapsed into her settee. Her arms are folded in her lap. She doesn't even bother to greet us. Pressed behind the elaborate scroll of names, her argent wings almost disappear. We approach a structure at the back of the show and peer through peepholes cut into the faux marble walls. Here is another funeral parlor. The deceased, quote unquote, is a pickaninny doll with racist features, his coffin decorated with masses of artificial blossoms. We're reminded of the flower-strewn beer of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old Chicago boy who was tortured and lynched in Money, Mississippi in 1955 after allegedly whistling at a white woman. Till's funeral in Chicago, where his disfigured corpse was displayed in an open coffin at his mother's insistence, jump-started the movement. Above Marshall's coffin is a projected film. In one sequence, children stand in the crossfire of gangs as pennies depicting the Illinois-born Lincoln and his memorial spin in the darkness. Another scenario represents a funeral where the mourners worship an ethereal white Christ illuminated by a golden lamp. Speech bubbles erupt from the parishioners' mouths. Jesus, they say, Jesus, Jesus. We do not ordinarily think of the Birmingham girls and the all too frequent victims of drive-by shootings or police killings in tandem. We think of the former as the intended targets of vicious clansmen, quote, martyred heroines of a holy crusade for freedom and human dignity who died nobly as King described them. Others, such as the teenager Hadia Pendleton, who died in a gun exchange in Chicago in 2013, two weeks after participating in President Obama's second inauguration with her high school band, are seen as the unlucky casualties of gang violence. The deaths of these lost girls and boys appear random and inexplicable, disconnected from the high ambitions of the civil rights era. In fact, all of these killings are connected. Marshall, author of an affecting series of portraits of such children, implies, no death is nobler or more meaningful than any other. Children have died, are dying. They die in all kinds of ways a gang shooting, a, quote, frightened police officer pulling a trigger. The end is the same. The long history of racial inequity and conflict in the United States has counted too many young victims. A half century on, the economic divisions between whites and blacks that King spoke about persist. Urban ghettos, de facto zones of segregation remain. Weak gun control laws facilitate these losses. 
If Marshall's gray canvases invite us to remember his ersatz mausoleum laid to rest, locates viewers very much in the present when the constant needless killing of African-Americans, many of them very young, maintains black life in a state of perpetual mourning, as the poet Claudia Ronquine has observed. A stark reality intrudes into the reverent memory space of the souvenirs. Remember Marshall's angels instruct. Cicerones of memory, these winged women ask us to recall a monumental past. This injunction was the first mode of address of the Renaissance Society show, its explicit subject matter. But now Marshall embedded a reflexive or connotative dimension in these canvases. The angels ask us to join their mourning, to remember. As we gaze at the martyrs' faces, we consider this important demand. To whom are the souvenirs addressed? What are we supposed to remember? What purpose will memory serve? What are its costs? If we remembered all these names and all these dates, what good would it do? When does memory become the chain that Nietzsche warns us about, a burden so cumbersome it impedes our ability to live entirely and productively in our own moment? Marshall transforms middle-class homes into memorials, the black living rooms of funeral parlor haunted by spectral visions. Memory in the souvenirs is accretive, additive, nominative. With each new painting, we're asked to identify more faces and more names. 14 martyrs crowd into the parlor in souvenir one. In souvenir two, Marshall adds two more. Souvenirs three and four retrieve still other names and histories. Musicians cry out the names of other musicians. The dead recall the dead. Something happens when we reach souvenir four. The process of inscription and remembrance breaks down. The memory scroll is incomplete. The final names have become illegible. The letters J-I at bottom spell only the beginning of Jimi Hendrix's name. The angel does not rise to greet us as her counterparts do. She's put down those daffodils and roses. She appears worn out, ground down. Her hands are clasped in resignation. Has the angel of memory grown weary of her charge? A photograph titled Mementos depicts a thrift shop picture frame nailed to a wall. The gold and silver frame at the center of this image is stuffed with old photographs of King and the Kennedys, of Malcolm, Cheney, and Schwerner, of Hampton and Clark, the Birmingham children, of Coleman Hawkins playing the sax, and Zora Hurston in a fashionable hat. Movement buttons and decals, a casket smothered in flowers, and a color image of a city in flames, the deadly Detroit riots of July 1967. Mementos is the brain of the eponymous exhibition, a meditation on Marshall's project and the archival source of its arresting imagery. At the top of this image, an incandescent lamp casts a warm light. 
Bathed in the fixture's lambency, the photo archive has been transfigured into a shrine of 60s recollection. Marshall has propped a mirror on the wall next to the picture altar. The border of the looking glass is etched in a floral pattern, reminiscent of greeting card garlands. In this photo of other photos, the reflexive mode of address of Marshall's project has become explicit. Within the mirror's reflection, we make out an arm, an elbow, a wrist, a sliver of shirt. Marshall pictures himself picturing the 60s, a period entirely mediated by its extensive photographic and televisual representation. He is a partial presence at best. His body is fragmentary, his face obscured by the photos stuffed in the gaudy frame. The pictures of movement martyrs and events are more present in this image than the artist who gathers them, who remembers. For Marshall does remember. Born in Birmingham in 1955, he was seven when the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed and when his family moved to Los Angeles as part of a larger migration of black people to Southern California, the so-called land of more of everything. In his painting, Watts, 1963, a work from his housing series, the artist represents himself and his sister and brother, newly arrived in that neighborhood. The bright green grass sprinkled with daisies and the sun rising behind the garden apartments evoke a mood of hopeful expectation. While the abstract white splotches and circles of dripping paint disrupt the halcyon image. The introspective feeling evoked by these material intrusions within the world of the painting's sunny illusionism culminates in Marshall's affecting portrayal of his brother, who coils into a fetal position on the lawn, impervious to his surroundings. This is what Marshall remembers. He remembered the fiery speeches of the Black Panthers, who maintained their headquarters down the street, from his family's second home in South Central. He remembers his, quote, Negro history teacher, Mr. Kawano, a member of the Panthers who came to class in army boots and military fatigues. He remembers the protests and strikes that occurred almost daily in his junior high school then. And he remembers most vividly of all the summer night in 1965 when he and his brother watched the sky above Watts explode in fire. This is Marshall. Quote, I remember looking out of the second floor window that night at a wall of flames on Central Avenue. Against that backdrop, the logo of this fast food chain called Jack in the Box, a grinning clown appearing from a box, was rotating slowly atop a pole. That image is forever seared into my memory. I distinctly remember telling myself, one day I'm going to make a picture of that. Marshall has described the souvenirs as history paintings. Grand in scale and rhetorically complex, they speak of his stated ambition to revive a highly valorized idiom of Western art that typically excluded black figures and black subject matter. The academic conventions of that genre, codified in the 18th century French and English academies, centered on the depiction of historical and mythological events rich in moral instruction. 
And so the artist of classical representation condensed complex stories into pregnant moments, as they were called, that a viewer could absorb and comprehend. Perhaps because he remembers the 60s so acutely, Marshall has typically avoided depicting that era's history directly. He never did manage to paint the fast food clown above a burning Watts. Or he depicts far away historical events he never witnessed and historical figures whose lives precede his own. Recent or remote, the black past is ever present in his depictions. Or it never left. History returns unbidden, unconsciously, in the minds of the living. It bubbles up through the earth and from the depths of the sea. It clings to the rooms and buildings he paints and etches the faces and bodies of his figures. And so different periods often cohabit in the same image. In Souvenir too, the buzz cuts and madmen suits of King and the Kennedys and the period hairstyles of Viola Liuzzo and the Birmingham children locate these figures in the early 60s while the touch-tone telephone and stack of Ameritech phone books date the scene to the period between that company's founding in 1984 and its renaming as AT&T in the 2000s. After the cell phone and internet made the earlier technologies obsolete. Combining signifiers of distinct, if proximate, eras, Souvenir 2 depicts a present that already appears dated and increasingly remote 20 years after Marshall completed it. Who are we precisely? The French historian Pierre Nora's distinction between lieu and milieu de mémoire is useful here. The lieu de mémoire, the site of official memory, memory sequestered in a memorial, is memory as obligation, or duty memory, as Pierre Nora calls it. The other, or milieu de memoir, is living memory, memory that flourishes in closed communities, such as the oral traditions handed down in rural villages in France. The conservative Nora is nostalgic for these pre-industrial memory milieu. With urbanization, communities fracture, he claims. Living memory fades. As memory becomes archival, it becomes less personal and less authentic. Duty memory trumps the, quote, authentic memory of the milieu. Carrie Marshall's works explore Nora's distinction, I think. They evoke longing for a time imagined to be more momentous than ours, and then they defeat that desire. They enjoin us to remember and they reflect on the costs of duty memory, of always gazing backward to an imagined golden age, next to which the present is felt to be lacking. The weight of civil rights memory for African Americans is particularly intense. The long 60s is the monumental era of recent black history, a mnemonic burden to those who are constantly reminded of it. Duty memory transforms daily life into a state of unending recollection. In oppressed communities in particular, Nora observes, the psychologization of memory has thus given to every individual the sense that his or her salvation depends on the repayment of an impossible debt. 
Duty memory is the mnemonic obligation of communities that carry traumatic recollections, a remembrance that is intertwined with feelings of loss. Consider the angel in Souvenir 1. Her skin is coal black, like the skin of the vast majority of figures in Marshall's black figure art, a skin so unrelentingly black it evokes not so much a natural skin tone as blackness as a sign within the discursive system we call, quote, race. Not only are her skin and her hair black, she wears a black blouse, slacks, and shoes. She's all black from head to toe. Only the whites of her eyes interrupt this dominant tonality. Skin and dress intermingle are one and the same. Together they form a sheath, a kind of membrane covering her body. The angel of black history is thus presented as one who mourns, whose memory of past sorrows has literally seeped into her skin and burrowed deep into her identity. She mourns a black past that is both tragic and monumental. The movement martyrs and the absence of their kind now. She mourns the loss of what Riddick Powell has called a vocal, powerful, long departed black self. So now we're coming to the end. The Reclaim the Dream March as this afternoon's event is called, is billed as a continuation march, not a commemoration march. It is not enough to remember, the organizers insist. Let us continue the struggle, pick up where the movement left off. Posters and buttons with paired portraits of King and Obama exhort the crowd to, quote, reclaim the promise. What does this mean? Like the art of 60s reenactment, which I discuss elsewhere in my book, commemoration is a theatrical staging of memory. Though they are very different, today there's no re-speaking of 1960s speeches, only present-day speeches. The Reclaim the Dream March fosters the dissonant cognition that reenactment does, an uncanny awareness of two eras at once. As we listen to such movement veterans as Merle Evers Williams or Representative John Lewis or the Reverend Joseph Lowry, the civil rights era does not feel far away. The crowd grows silent as Evers Williams describes the horrible night her husband Medgar was gunned down in the driveway outside their home. Lewis recalls the beatings that he and others endured at the hands of the Alabama police at the bridge at Selma. Their recollections are searing. Their presence induces a feeling of awe, admiration for these individuals and for the history they made. The past that touches down at this gathering and touches every one of us as we listen to their words, to their trembling voices. No, the 60s does not seem ancient then. Not when we listen to them. Not when Evers Williams speaks Medgar's name. But as the day wears on and others take the podium, the heady memories of that time evaporate in the afternoon sun.
Phrases like reclaim the promise ring hollow. In the famous photos of the first march, the reflecting pool is, is an image of serenity and hope. Today, the actual pool is a stagnant brown soup. I walk away from the water's edge to avoid the stench. The attempt to recharge memory is no simple matter. Fierce urgency is not easily retrieved. For there is an undercurrent in these speeches, these proceedings, a sense not of progress, but of deja vu. The queasy suspicion that things are moving backward. Return today not only suggests the recovery of a past possibility, what the literary critic Walter Benjamin calls the time of the now, it also suggests a containment of 60s energies, the retrenchment that began when the long 60s ended, and that causes that era to appear meaningful as it retreats. The movement's victories are being repealed. The speakers remind us. The Supreme Court has just gutted key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, the law that the Selma marchers fought for, that Liuzzo and Jackson and Reeb died for. State legislatures and legislatures are passing voter ID laws that make it harder for persons of color and the poor to vote. Harsh criminal sentences fall to an inordinate degree on black men. African-Americans are targets of racial murders, police profiling, and police abuse. Quote, in the 50s, there was Emmett Till. Today, there is Trayvon Martin. The Reverend Sharpton acknowledges the presence of the families of both victims, the northern black boy lynched in Mississippi 58 years ago, and the teenager in a hoodie gunned down after leaving a Florida convenience store. His analogy has only grown more pointed since the Reclaim the Dream march, as images of riots in Ferguson and Baltimore dredge up memories of Detroit and Watts and videos of unprovoked shootings of African-Americans circulate on the internet, and names like Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Waquan McDonald, and Tamir Rice had become central references in the Black Lives Matter movement. As nine parishioners are gunned down in yet another historical black church, and as a revived white supremacist movement espouses hatred openly, egged on by a president who openly targets racial, religious, and sexual minorities for political power. The non-Nigerian Reverend Lowry says it best, everything has changed and nothing has changed. In 2003, Marshall returned to the theme of the Chicago exhibit. He completed one final painting in the sequence of souvenirs. He named this work Memento Five. The last of the pictures is Grisaille. Here too is another angel. She's dressed in white now and faces us head on. The deep proscenium space of the first souvenir has shallowed out. Where in the previous works, gold and silver glitter borders foster the illusion that we're in front of or inside these interiors. In Memento 5, 
The silver slats of a Venetian curtain divide the space the angel inhabits from the extremely shallow space in front, the fictive place where we stand. Marshall positions us behind these stripes of stacked lozenges. The angel grasps the curtains, draws them together. Her hands are in, quote, our space. Brilliant and opaque, the glitter blinds attract and repel perception. We peer into a space we've been barred from entering. The chamber of 60s memory is beyond our reach. What do we see? Three bowls of flowers, a lamp, a coffee table, matching side tables, a sofa and love seat upholstered in chintz. A painting of trees frames the angel's face, emphasizing the whites of her eyes and the intensity of her stare. And where earlier works in the series are cluttered with names and faces, with bric-a-brac and furniture, the composition of Memento V is austere. The morning banner has vanished. Just a few martyrs remain. Angels bearing the faces of King and the Kennedys float in the milky atmosphere. A wingless Malcolm hovers opposite. Marshall evokes the great division in 60s politics between Malcolm's militant black nationalism and King's interracial, non-denominational fellowship, a tension that deepened after the assassinations of these men. Between the silver glitter slats of the curtain, we read the cardinal numbers of the decadal 60s rotated 90 degrees. Why did Marshall take up this subject five years after the Chicago show? The making of Memento Five was inspired by the convictions of church bombing conspirators Tommy Blanton and Bobby Frank Cherry in 2001 and two after decades of stalling and subterfuge by the local authorities and the FBI. And with the death of Evers' assassin Byron Della Beckwith in a Jackson, Mississippi hospital, also in 2001, and the recent passing of Edgar Ray Killen, who directed the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner at a prison in Mississippi, Still other protagonists of the most infamous events of civil rights memory were indeed laid to rest. Memento Five is an image of closure, shutting down, a painting of the end that is still ending, a 60s that is slipping away. What a time, what a time, the legend at the bottom reads a doubled, emphatic expression of 60s longing. Remember, another text states simply, painted in the same vintage font, this exhortation disappears behind the martyr's cloud, behind the portraits of King and the Kennedys, who in life dreamed of new frontiers and beloved communities, and who in death came to stand for a time that changed everything that haunts us still. Let us count the years one more time. 1960, 1961, 1962, 1963, 1964. 
1965, 1966, 1967, 1968, 1969. Then it is over. There are no more numbers. The angel retreats, the curtains are drawn, the room fades to darkness. The memory chamber is shuttered. We are no longer asked to remember. That's it. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.